Do you always need to be the host of your own podcast? The question might feel a little shocking. I mean, of course, you want to be the host of your own podcast. And if you've got a company, of course, someone on your team is going to be the host of that podcast. But there can be times when bringing in a third party as the host is the best business decision for your show. This is one of the ideas I'm talking about with my guest today, Fatima Zaidi, and she makes the excellent point that it can be a good way to change and improve the representation in the industry created by your podcast and help you create a better show in general. We're digging into the podcast industry, who is reflected in it, and how smaller shows can play with the big ones. We also get to talk about co-host, which is taking a run at some of the big data and analytics providers in the industry, which they are uniquely positioned to do as a podcast host. Fatima is the founder and CEO of Quill Inc., an award-winning podcast production agency specializing in corporate audio and co-host, a podcast growth and analytics tool. A discussion of diversity, data, and quality decision-making is coming your way. It's all happening on the Business Podcast Blueprint Show. Fatima, thank you so much for joining me today. Such a pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me. So I'd like to jump right in and ask you if you can recall Through the Sands of Time. What is the first podcast that you ever remember listening to? Oh, I don't even need to think about this one. I didn't even know what a podcast was until 2014 when my best friend called me up and was <laughs> like, there's this new murder mystery audio format show going around. They call it a podcast. It's you know <laughs> hosted by a woman called Sarah. I think it's Koning or Koning. And she is interviewing this Pakistani guy who's been accused of murdering his girlfriend. and right off the bat, that description alone is so compelling. And I was like, okay, great. Where can I download this? And she's like, actually, it's a podcast. You have to listen to it on one of the streaming sites. And that was my first interaction with a podcast. And clearly the interaction that the rest of the world also had where it became a household name. What did you think when you started listening? And like, especially having to go to a streaming app. I don't know if you already had a podcast listening app on your phone or on your computer, but like, what was the experience like as you were getting into it for the first time? Believe it or not, I didn't have an app. I didn't even know that those like apps existed on your phone where you could stream audio. I listened to it on a, a desktop version of, I think it was like on their landing page. And honestly, I was hooked. I thought it was just such a well-created show. At the time, people didn't even realize it, but she didn't have huge production budgets. So she is living proof that you don't actually have to work with a huge production house to have a successful show. You can create something scrappy with lower budgets as a pilot and pitch it to networks to pick it up if there's like a case for it. I thought she did a really good job and clearly so do the rest of the world. And I think that's where audio format really took off. I think the thing that I was most excited about, I was working at a marketing agency at the time and doing biz dev and sales. And I found it really cool that I could commute to work and listen to the podcast at the same time. Like I can't watch a Netflix show while I'm driving to work. I can't watch a video while I'm or read an article when I'm walking my dog, but I can listen to a podcast. And I found the more engaged I was with another activity, the more I was invested into the podcast. And then I was like, oh, well, that's really interesting because no other advertisers have access to this type of clientele. Like no digital marketer, no PR person. Like you can't access people when they're doing their chores and commuting to work, but audio can. And that was actually when I first started thinking about Quill as an idea. That was going to be what I wanted to ask. You went from in 2014, not having an app on your phone for podcasts to today, being the CEO of two podcast tech and production companies. <laughs> so I'd love to hear a little bit about that journey. Yeah. So it, it isn't as like left field as you would think. I actually 
ran a marketing agency back when I heard podcasts for the first time. And I was creating or our company was creating content and PR campaigns for Fortune 500 brands. So the same type of clientele that we work with today, we were creating content. We just weren't really focused on audio content. So around the same time, we started seeing this influx of brands wanting to dabble in this space. And it made a lot of sense to me because everybody consumes content in different ways. And only recently have I realized that the way that I consume content is actually audio. I now listen to 10 podcasts a week and I'm not really, I know this is like sacrilegious for a millennial, but I'm not really a Netflix person. I don't really like watching TV that much, but I love listening to audio content. And I think back then when I started to realize this trend, I started working with a lot of contractors on the ground to execute on audio format style shows. And eventually with time in doing that, realized that I wanted to sell the company and productize our services in podcasting. So that's how Quill was born. Very cool. And so you work primarily with brands and with corporate podcasts. It's kind of similar to our audience. I think we work with smaller companies for the most part. But what would you say are some of the big differences when it comes to you know, a podcast that is for a brand, for a company, and one that is maybe more of a passion project or more indie? Kind of how do you look at those differences? Well, I would say that first and foremost, brands are typically doing it to serve a business objective. Very few corporate podcasts will come forward and say, or corporate brands will come forward and say that they want a podcast. Its sole purpose is to educate or entertain consumers. So very rarely will you see a, a McKinsey Financial or a Deloitte putting out like a investigative series type show or a true crime documentary. <laughs> Usually corporate podcasts are falling into one of couple camps brand awareness and thought leadership, lead generation and sales generation, and telling their brand story. It really serves those purposes well. Whereas if you're doing a passion project or you're an indie content creator, the world is your oyster. You can sort of define what you want your KPIs to look like. Whereas with brands, it's pretty specific. No, I love that. And I think you know, this is the, the business podcast blueprint show. And those are almost exactly the blueprints that we Fine, we tend to work with you know, the thought leadership, the audience engagement, business development, sometimes you know, for getting content out on a consistent basis. So I think that's that's really interesting. And who is the talent on these podcasts that you're creating? Is it do you find it's it's you know marketing managers? Do they hire talent? Sort of who's who's the host? It's usually, I would say they're CEOs and founders or like the executive, someone from the executive team is like internal representation. I have become a lot more, I would say particular about trying to push for external hosts. Even with branded shows, I find that having an external host can sometimes be... I used to think that having internal representation was great because you could tell your brand story in an authentic way. But over time, I've come to realize actually having a third-party host can give you a very objective and neutral voice when telling the story. So sometimes I actually prefer to go like the third-party route. It's a combination of the two. Like If it's thought leadership, then usually they have somebody internally appointed which can be like a CTO, a CEO, a CMO. But sometimes it is an external person that we bring in who could be an influencer, a news anchor, you know, an expert in some particular topic. And then we have them sort of tell the story. We are like really intentional about representation as well. And so sometimes if they can't find the proper representation internally, then we will recommend that they go externally. And what are you looking for in that kind of representation? Because I mean, you know, there are a lot of CEOs, managing partners, directors who are just like, oh, yeah, I'll be a podcast host. It's going to yeah. be great. And then get into it and realize like, oh, oh, there's a lot I wasn't quite prepared for. So what makes a good 
Maybe there's someone listening who's like, oh, I could get into third party hosting. That would be cool. What does that relationship look like between the representation, the third party and the company? Well, first and foremost, the diversity component is really important because podcasting it as an industry is very skewed towards male listeners. And actually, it's not just about audience composition. It's also shows that are produced, directed, hosted by folks that are usually male identifying. So right off the bat, I like want to see more female identifying representation in shows. And that's something that we really push for. And then, of course, like BIPOC and ethnic diversity as well. Like as an industry, if we want to serve more people in, in places like Chicago, LA, New York, Dubai, Hong Kong, we need to sound more like those people. And so we're always trying to create shows that don't always sound like the same shows today. And I get really upset when people ask for show recommendations and people are like, the Joe Rogan show, Tim Ferriss's show, 10% Happier by Dax Shepard, how I built this, reply all. And it's like, well, first, every single one of them has a white male host. And that's a problem for me. And then the second thing is all of these shows belong to massive networks and production houses. And there's so many amazing podcasts out there that are created by indie content creators and smaller networks that are amazing, but they don't get profiled because they don't have the multi-million dollar budgets. And to me, it's just like, we have to be so intentional about that today. And I would say that's really a core focus when, when choosing and selecting a host is, does this person sound like every other podcast host? If so, then let's look for representation outside of this one profile. No, I absolutely love that. It, it's that, I guess, old saw that's going around is, it's, 2020, what do you call a group of middle-aged white men? <laughs> Podcast. <laughs> I love that. I've never heard that before, but that's so good. That's so good. I mean, I would say even at Podcast Movement, it was pretty disappointing to see the lack of representation. For those of you listening, Podcast Movement is the industry's biggest conference, and it was in Dallas this past year. I actually just got back from it on Friday, and I was telling Megan that I just think that it's even on stage, we need to be more intentional about the representation that we have because most of the speakers were white, white men. Yeah, I know that's so, because I mean, as, as we were also talking about, I'm uh, One Stone Creative, we're running a virtual podcasting conference for, you know, podcasting for business towards the end of the year. And I mean, obviously it takes a little extra work to, you know, have a more diverse guest but not a lot of extra work. <laughs> it does. It's not that hard. I mean, it is a little like you do have to like look a little forced, shake the network tree a little harder, but like it's not a lot of work for the benefit that you get from totally. doing it or from the good you're putting into the world totally. by doing it. Totally. We sponsored the growth track at Podcast Movement. And so we did five panels and we programmed those five panels and there was like four to five people on each panel. And we definitely had to do a lot of extra work to make sure that the stage looked like representation that we would be proud of and would stand behind. And and it wasn't hard because there isn't the right talent out there. It was hard because whenever you reach out to a company for speakers, they always push the same people. And it, I had to get very pushy with them, which is, I don't want another white male. And it had to get to a point where I was like, I'm asking you for this speaker and you keep pushing this speaker. Diversity and inclusion really matters to me and it should matter to you as well. So unless there's something here that you're not understanding or there's a disconnect. And when you say that, then they usually understand. But you have to be willing to say no to a lot of the same powerful people in podcasting who always want to take the stage. Yeah, I think that that's a really good point. And it's, it's not easy to do that. I mean, it adds an element of social awkwardness to something that already isn't easy. Well, these are the people who are also writing the checks. 
these are the sponsors. These are the people who are also funding the conference and writing the checks. And so it's the catch-22 because you want their money, which I get, but you can't say no to them or you feel like you can't say no to them because you're taking their money. It is also challenging because you want the presenting public to match the listening public, at least to a degree. It feels like things are starting to change a little bit. I mean, there's some really cool organizations out there right now focusing on, you know, BIPOC creators. It's really lovely to see. I know She Podcast as an organization. Yeah, I is, love them. Jessica is they're amazing. They're so great about it. But yeah, well, I guess thank you for being out there doing the work of making it better, making it more diverse. It's always good to meet professionals working on that at a really high level. Thank you. Yeah, it's, I really appreciate that. It's tough. It's really tough because, you know, even for example, you want to support all of these organizations, but at the end of the day, you also have a business to run. So it's like straddling a really fine line. So I understand the challenges of like having to be really intentional about it, but I think it's gotten to a point now where we sort of have to be like unapologetic, where these are the mandates and this, it is what it is. Actually, I was listening to a story recently, you know, James Cridlin from Pod News. Yeah. Yeah. He actually pulled out of a panel because they didn't have enough representation. Oh, good man. And I love that. I love that so much. I'm never going to forget that. I won't name the company who was putting on a panel, but he was on it and he reached out and asked them to provide some representation on the panel and they didn't. And so he pulled out. Stuff. I see that that's what you would like to see more of always. Mm-hmm, so totally. 10 points to James. We'll be right back in just a moment. And now back to the show. To back around a little to something you said a couple of minutes ago, and it's that are these organizations, these production companies that are making these really big, really popular shows that have these multi-million dollar production budgets. But you also made the excellent point right at the top that you don't necessarily need that to have a really good show. So what are you looking for in an amazing or really high quality show that you're producing for someone or a company that doesn't have that much to invest? in their audio content? Funnily enough, good content, you don't actually need a ton of ad spend. I mean, I think where having budgets is helpful is accelerating growth with marketing. But when it comes to actually creating a show, I mean, how much does it cost to purchase a microphone and subscribe to a recording software platform like Riverside or Squadcast, and then use a hosting platform to distribute your show? All of that is really the monetary investment required to get a show up and running. The rest is your time, which of course is valuable, but you don't necessarily need to associate a dollar value to that if you're creating something that you're like truly passionate about. I think a high quality production for me falls into one of three buckets. The first, the best or different. That's what your show should fall into. And so really taking the time to understand your competitive matrix, who's your ideal listener profile and who are you creating the show for? The more niche, the better, in my opinion, especially in, in our marketplace today. And then just really understanding how you're going to position yourself. And then from there, just doing the research, creating a story arcs, like all of that doesn't really require budget. It just requires time. Actually, we were so tired of hearing the same podcast winning the Ambies and the Discover Pod Awards <laughs> that we launched our own awards category called the Quail Podcast Awards. We launched it two years ago. We get hundreds and hundreds of submissions every year. and Every year we profile like smaller shows that aren't part of our network. And I've listened to all of the nominee podcasts. They're so good. The, the content is amazing. And 
you can just see the impact that we're having on them and their shows and their motivation to keep going because they're trying to compete with This American Life, The Daily, like those types of shows. And it's like, they just can't. They can't compete in those categories. So we were like, let's launch an awards category that is actually catered to them. And we will not allow anyone from a big network to apply. So you can't be a Wondery or a Gimlet. You won't win. But that's like, you might as well not apply because you won't be picked as a winner. And there are awards. We don't do the judging. We have industry judges. The prerequisite is that you're an independent creator. That is very cool. And of course, for everyone listening, that will be linked to in the show notes that you can check out the nominees and perhaps submit your own show. And you should apply too in the business category next year. I should, yeah. We do it in where submissions always open up in March. Perfect. Actually, I think one of our projects for the summer we had at One Stone Creative, we were honored to get an intern in the form of my business partner's teenage son. And we had him researching all of the different podcast awards that were going on so we could put together a list for clients and community. Oh, amazing. We have and one Quill too. And definitely on it. You have one too? Oh, good, good. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we have one too. And I'm so glad that Quill's on it. And we really encourage, like, we have so many different categories. The other cool thing about our awards is we're not just profiling shows. We also profile podcast companies that are making a difference. So if you wanted to submit your agency as one in mm-hmm. the agency category, we always really like to get submissions like that aren't the same big production agencies like Cast and NPR and Gimlet. We had so many people write Gimlet and I was like, stop, we don't need to see more nominations by Gimlet. I'd like to see some of the smaller production companies like, I don't know if you know Yuleka, but I absolutely love her company. I think they won one of the years. Well, check her out. Awesome. Well, that's very exciting. So this is less about the awards or winning and more on the individual show level, but how do you help the people that you work with determine whether their show is a success or a failure? Because I mean, as you said, it's business. So kind of what are some of the metrics or the criteria that you're looking at for that? Well, that's actually why we launched Co-Host. Um, it wasn't necessarily just for hosting. It was, we weren't getting access to the data and the analytics that we needed to help our brands understand the ROI of their show and if they should justify the creation of new production budgets. We spent a lot of time talking to existing hosting platforms asking for this data and we never really got it. So we decided that we would launch our own platform so that we could report on things like demographic information, age, gender, household income, occupation, loyal listeners. We want, really want to be able to identify how many people are staying on for repeat content. Another metric that we report on, we're actually the only hosting platform that reports on this, is we're the only hosting platform that reports on average consumption rate and showing you where your listeners are dropping off in your content. And we're soon going to be doing that per episode as well. And we can do everything that Chartable can do. So tracking, like showing you where your downloads are coming in from, where your downloads are coming in from, top performing, lowest performing channels, cost per download. And because we're a hosting platform that owns the data, it's a better mm-hmm. user experience than Chartable because Chartable, it was a third party integration because they're not Let's hosting. Let's be honest, that's not hard. Yeah. No, <laughs> no. Yeah. no description codes. I am delighted someone is taking a run at Chartable. <laughs> which is extremely exciting. But yeah, their customer experience was not great. Yeah, it was not great. <laughs> One of the main reasons is because they're not hosting. They don't own and collect the data. So they don't have access to their own data that they need. So we wanted to do things a little bit differently. We wanted to redo what Chartable was doing, but provide a better experience and then provide a premium analytics platform for brands and a lot of professional podcasters, producers, and agency owners like yourself. I think the long-term plan with our platform is to 
be able to export all of the data that we provide on our platform in a beautiful report template that you can use Mm. as a deliverable for your clients or internal teams at your brand and to justify the ROI. So right now, these are the metrics that we're measuring to define ROI. But I would say the cost per minute of human attention, we're really trying to automate that. Oh, that's really, really cool. Because I mean, what you're really addressing is is a huge problem yeah. in podcasting and it's understanding listener behavior. Yes. Of like the big issues that exist in podcasting and discoverability metrics and, and clarity on listener behavior. That's that's a huge one. So totally. it's really exciting that you're working on it. Totally. And we want to like, we spend hours writing reports on the agency side of our business. So we wanted to create a product where we could automate that and we could just export all of this data along with insights. So not only are we giving you the data, we're telling you, how people are responding to your show and the insights from this data and what you need to do to make your show better. That is really like the process that we want to automate. That's really exciting. And so as someone who's an independent company in this space, how do you feel looking at Spotify buying up Megaphone, who you know we've been hosting with and are happy with, but also Chartable and all of these kind of like this amalgamation of podcasting tech? What's your take on that? I was actually asked this question on a panel at Podcast Movement, what my thoughts were on the acquisition. And I said really two things. One, great for us that Chartable was acquired because as we can see with Megaphone, as soon as you get acquired by Spotify, the innovation stops. Like Megaphone has yet to put out a feature that has like done any form of innovation and actually made a difference to their users. And Chartable, they were already crap to begin with, in my opinion. And now it's just like, okay, great. And now you're literally going to be a cog in a machine. You obviously don't care about your users. Personally, this is what I think. I think that platforms and publishers should be very hesitant to accept campaign metrics from a platform that not only owns podcasts, sells ads on them, and then also owns the reporting platform. It's this concept that publishers should not be grading their own homework. And if Spotify had purchased one of the companies, so either Podsites or Chartable, they would have created more competition. They would have put pressure on the other companies. They would have changed the landscape for the better, but they purchased both at the same time, which created a hole in the market. And, you know, I think it's a great opportunity for our company to come out with that information. But at the same time, I feel like Spotify, by making that acquisition, it was a bully offer, which is you have to, and I I don't know if you remember this, in the early days when they first made the move, they said, you can only have access to Chartable and pod sites if you're a Megaphone user moving forward, which essentially tells you they don't care about any of their customers or their users. This was purely a money play. And they over time changed that because they got so much flack from the industry. But to me, you know, if you're really trying to innovate in this space, I just don't know if you're going to do that by merging with such a huge conglomerate that is yet to innovate. No, very good point. Because that, you know, I hadn't really thought about it until you mentioned it. But yeah, there really hasn't been anything in the way of updates on the megaphone end other than my credit card statement changing to Spotify. (laughs) Big change. That's, yeah, really, really interesting. Exactly. So, well, this seems like an absolutely perfect opportunity for you to talk a little bit more about the excellent features and ease of use of (laughs) co-host. Why don't we go for it a little? Sure. (laughs) This is my time to do a shameless pitch, but essentially... Be shameless. Absolutely. (laughs) You're so invited to. Co-host is really for any professional podcasters who are looking for premium insights or analytics. So essentially, we are providing you with additional demographic information on who your user is and how they're responding to your show. Things like average consumption rate, location data broken down by state, province, city. We do tracking links. We also do automatic transcriptions. 
for accessibility purposes. So that's included with all of your episodes, as well as a custom SEO formatted website. And right now we're working on metrics like loyal listeners. We're working with Edison on a project to provide more analytics. And then we're going to be starting on that report template that I mentioned earlier that you can literally just click on a button and hand it over to your clients or your internal executive teams as a deliverable. So, you know, lots of different features we can, I would say, pretty much do everything that other hosting platforms can do, but like additional features. And we have tried to consolidate everything. So we've included transcriptions and chartable features. So tracking links as a part of our service. Next up is going to be integrating with Headliner for audiograms and recording software so that you can do all of that in one place and not have to purchase like a million different vendors. You can do it all from your hosting platform. And really, I would say that would be the goal. We are right now price matching. So we have a price point that we charge brands. But if you are an independent producer or a small agency owner, we will match whatever it is that you're currently paying. Very cool. So if you are listening and are in the market for a new host, that's definitely one to check out. Yeah. And if you're on another platform and wondering how you're going to do the migration, we do all of that for you. We do your migration and we assign you with an account manager and we carry over all of your data. That's one of my favorite things to hear. (laughs) Nobody wants to start at net zero. Nobody wants to do their own migration. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. No, it's a lot of work. Perfect. Well, this has been extraordinarily fascinating. Thank you so much for taking the time for sharing this information and for telling us about co-host, which it sounds like has been uh, developing fast and furiously yes. over the last little while, especially since we last spoke. So it's well, really cool to hear so about the much. updates. Thank you. Thank you so, so much for having me on your show and for being such a great community support pillar for us and the rest of the industry. And, and we're really excited to champion you from the sidelines and hopefully have you at the next conference that the industry puts on. If you can give people the rundown on where they can find out more about Quill and also production-wise, who do you like working with at Quill? Who are you looking for as clients? And then how can people find out more about Co-host? Production-wise, on the agency side, we work with corporate brands. So anyone who sort of falls into that vertical. As we know, Co-host side, it's really professional podcasters, agencies, producers, and brands. And where can you find us? Our agency website is quillpodcasting.com. Our product website is cohostpodcasting.com. And I am available personally on all of the social media channels except for TikTok. You can find me pretty much anywhere. LinkedIn is probably the best one, but very accessible if you need me. Fantastic. So all of that will be linked in the show notes. Um, Thank you again. And thank you everyone for listening. Thank you. So how do I become a better storyteller in interviews? Whether you're the host or a guest, you need to be able to tell good stories. And like every other skill, the answer is in practicing. But how do you practice telling stories? But first, let's get clear on the kind of story that we're talking about. Within business or professional podcasts, there are two high-level types of story that you can use. The first is the bigger overarching narrative of an episode, and that may or may not be appropriate for your show. People like, understand, and connect with stories, and narrative tension caused by not knowing what's going to happen, or in our cases more frequently, how to solve a problem, It keeps people captivated. As you're planning episodes, think about that gap in knowledge that your listener has. Whether it's a solo episode or an interview, remember the arc. Identifying and explaining the problem, exploring the consequences and outcomes of that problem, and finally, the relief, solving the problem or presenting the after the solution state. You might want to include your ads and transitions right before that kind of a cliffhanger, and you can order your interview questions to follow this general path as well. The other type of story 
is the kind that you tell to illustrate ideas and create connection with the audience. These are otherwise known as anecdotes. It might feel like a genuine anecdote has to be, you know, fresh off the cuff, but the truth is you can practice them and a lot of people do. Curate a little library of stories that amuse, delight, explain, or show a moment of revelation, change, or tension, or when something big happened. Practice them in front of the mirror and transitioning to and from them in different ways from different topics so that when an appropriate opening comes up in the future, you are ready to go. As always, I've been your host, Megan Doherty, and the Business Podcast Blueprint Show is created by the whole team at One Stone Creative. Make sure you check out Quill Inc. and co-host, who, full disclosure, we are going to be working with in the very near future. And if you're feeling pod curious, get in touch. We'd love to hear about your plans and talk about your future show. You can reach out at any time via any contact form on onestonecreative.net. That's O-N-E, stonecreative.net. <laughs>